0: This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Cork Street Galleries. To find out more about the original home of the art world, go to corkstreetgalleries.com. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about the music, the art, the books and more that have influenced their life and work. And I'm thrilled that the guest on this episode is Chantal Joffé. Chantal was born in 1969 in Vermont in the US and moved to London as a child. She studied in Glasgow in the late 1980s at the School of Art there and then moved on to the Royal College of Art in London. And this is important because both of those schools at those moments were really significant centres of painting. So in Glasgow, there was a strong tradition of figurative painting in the 1980s, and then in the early 90s, the Royal College of Art gained a real new impetus as a centre for the latest developments in painting among young artists. And in fact, it wasn't long after she had left the Royal College of Art that Chantal first achieved success, she was in the New Contemporaries exhibition, the annual survey of students and recent graduates that's happened in the UK for decades, and at that show she was noticed by a number of notable people in the art world, including the gallerist who still represents her, Victoria Miro. And indeed much of her focus was established in those early works, she paints people. In those days, she was using found imagery. There were images of children, for instance, but also images that she'd found in porn magazines. There was fashion imagery. But unlike a lot of painting that's based on photographic images, her work was, right from the start, definitively incredibly painterly. It had very, very expressive marks. It was vigorously colorful, and the paint was very raw and crude on the surface. And she's continued to loosen and expand her style ever since. High colour and bold pattern dominate her surfaces. In many ways, Chantal's work is a study in opposites. There's a distinct pleasure in her work, in those colours, for instance, but also a certain awkwardness in the poses. There's a distinct intensity and yet a certain ease about them. And as her work has evolved, her paintings have become increasingly personal. She paints her heroines, for instance, literary heroines. So there are images of Emily Dickinson and Emily Bronte. There are images of Anne Sexton and other artists whose work and lives have transformed Chantal's. And in many cases, her works have become increasingly ambitious in terms of scale. They can be massive. And I think her painting reached a new high watermark in 2019 when she had two shows simultaneously at the two Victoria Miro galleries in London. In one, she showed a series of self-portraits, intense self-portraits that she'd done over the course of a year, making one every single day, utterly uncompromising and unflinching, even harsh. I would say. And then on the other hand, a series of much more pleasurable, much bigger, much more expansive images, mostly of her daughter and her daughter's friends. There was a distinct sense of an artist being at the top of her game. And in fact, it's this distinct shift in her work that I asked her about at the start of the conversation. How deliberate was this movement from images of porn stars or from fashion magazines into these studies of herself and her daughter?
1: I think I always thought that um, what you painted was reflecting what you're interested in. So I guess really, honestly, when I was painting pornography, I was kind of interested in sex because I was young and you know what I mean? And then I painted a lot of babies and then I had a baby. And then I think the models and stuff, I still had a kind of interest in, I don't know, beauty and kind of young women. And I was a young, you know, all that. I think I'm always painting the thing right in front of me. I think almost I sort of think everybody's doing that to an extent, but I think the older I get, the more vital that feels to be doing exactly... I think that's the whole pursuit of art, is to get as close as you can to the absolute truth of yourself and of what you're thinking and looking at.
0: That's so powerful, because it seems to me that there's an idea that that we think about source material, like I was just saying, like, you know, you're, you're pulling images from... A sort of somehow removed reality, but in a sense, what you're saying is there's an there's there's the same level of personal engagement. It's just that the subjects have shifted.
1: Well, yeah, and actually, the found material you're, you're the one looking, so you're finding what you're looking for. Really, you you know, I was looking to look at sex or something, and that was what. So that's what I found, and you know, and I, that was a that wasn't accidental. And choices are not accidental. And with the babies. I think also it's easy to say that retrospectively at the time I probably would have said something very political about the sexual work or something more kind of general about the babies but I think as I get older it's harder to dissemble from myself and I think that's the value of getting older as an artist that you get you know like with somebody like Marsden Hartley he's such a fantastic painter and towards the end of his life he's painting really hot young men in sort of g-strings and stuff and there's something about this very sort of recessive seeming man who used to paint cloudy skies and logs suddenly he's able to just think break free and think you know I'm going to paint my truths I'm going to paint the thing I'm most interested I love that about art it's or late Guston or something you know he's always trying to get as close as he can and I think when one's young one's always maybe for a lot of people you're sort of circling the subject or circling the truth you're trying to get to.
0: And I'm interested also, given that you're so focused on the world around you, your everyday, and and you've made, that's that's been an insistent element of your work right from the start. I'm wondering about the separation between home life and studio life, in the sense that, you know, is there a moment where thinking shifts when you cross that threshold into the studio? Or is it sort of all a continuum and you you just then have the tools to work with in the studio
1: no for me a studio is absolutely a, another headspace and i i literally open the door and the smell of it and the plate i feel i don't know it's like you leave another piece of yourself outside and i mean having said that throughout obviously lockdown and everything my daughter has been working in her she's got a room in my studio and she said to me the other day, "Mum, you taught me to be really good at working alone. And that made me kind of slightly sad, but also laugh because I have. She's really brilliant. You know, we eat our lunch separately in the studio. <laughs> but, and I feel kind of bad about that, but also it's sometimes she'll talk to me and I'll say, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, you know, I want to hold on to the thoughts. And, and actually for me, when I sit down to paint, I was, this is going ahead in a way, but when I sit down to paint, I immediately it's like switching on a radio in my head and I can hear my own thoughts in a way that I can't without the brush in my hand, and everything else is gone, and I'm just accessing these thoughts that without the paintbrush I couldn't. And in a funny way, the actual image sometimes is almost, or what I'm painting, is weirdly... The least important thing it 's the access to the thoughts i 'm after, a bit like a sort of weird I often think of it as like an addiction it 's like i 've got to get to that drug
0: that 's fascinating i love I love the idea of the paintbrush as a kind of an antennae for your thoughts you know <laughs> a sort of it, that somehow it's, it's channeled through a tool
1: it literally is and it's it 's stupid because people always talk about thinking about art or what they 're going to paint like separately, and I cannot do that. I can only think when i 'm painting. And it's not always words, it's, it's shapes and ideas and they, they're, they're activated by the brush.
0: Let's begin with the questions that we ask all our guests. The first one is, who was the first artist whose work you loved?
1: I can never answer anything straightforwardly because I I thought about this and the in my head I was shouting Soutine because in a way he is, I think I first saw him at Camberwell on my foundation and I think I saw um, the two children on a windy day and then I saw the fish on the plate and the fork and it was like that quivering kind of emotion and the thing and how they met the making and the image. I couldn't have said that at the time but... I would have just said it was the picture that I loved. But yeah, so Soutine and I have never wavered. I just love him.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's that unbelievably dense, fleshy quality of paint. I mean, it's so often said, you know, paint is so powerful because it can have that equivalent to the human body and that's never embodied more than in in soutine's paintings right
1: and then the emotion and, and the lack of he, he's never trying to make it real or but it's his real you know what i mean there's no the head will be big or you know or the like there was a group of them at the, the court told recently of the um hotel people and waitresses and stuff and that you know there was a boy with red cheeks and a sort of nose turned up and they were so utterly real without ever being, you know, photographic, I guess. Um, and they they also have this incredible utter speed and energy in the line. It's funny, you know, when you're in a museum somewhere abroad and you're walking through and then they always just jump out at you, don't they, you know, and they're small, they're not big. But yeah, too deep. <laughs> I'm sticking with him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I mean, you may have answered this next question in that answer. Is he, Who's the historical painter that you turn to the most?
1: Again, this was a tricky one because... Um, so many people leap out at me. Um, now, in a weird way, Degas oddly is probably the person I turn to. I I'm mad for Degas, but then equally, I'm mad for Paula and becker and Manet and El Greco and Morisot and Romero Bearden and Realastnik. You know, there's so many, and Guston, of course. Um, I find it hard to choose, and I think there's a truth in that the one one turns to is often it's like a medicine you need at that time you know
0: yeah yeah but I'd like to pick up on a couple of those because they seem to me to be really central figures in so much of your work so let's talk about Duga because I mean one of the things that it seems to me is crucial about Duga and your work is that you borrowed this technique of having this apple green ground in your paintings that and, and and you know in many of those paintings it's so visible, that ground, and it has a sort of an electric charge around, around the rest of the paint. Tell me about why you wanted to do that and what you feel it brings to, to the work.
1: Well, there's a really fantastic book. I think it's Degas on Degas. It's his letters and stuff. And you can read a lot about he, – he wrote quite a lot about ideas about painting and about his methods – And so he'll often say stuff like, you know, never start with the head, always start somewhere new, you know. So I write those down on a bit of paper and stick them to the studio wall because, and the apple green, that was, he was always trying to get at colour and different ways of kind of registering pinks and oranges or something. And he said, oh, apple green is fantastic to paint flesh. You know, if you paint, you know, flesh is a broad term, but if you paint people onto a green ground, it's it the colors will really sing whereas if you paint on a white ground everything kind of goes flat and dead um so but I don't only use apple green Dustin used kind of creamy pink that I like it's that thing though isn't it with art that they're all there they're like your whole alphabet that you go to to kind of get stuff from and and if you're not looking at other people and getting stuff from them I kind of don't what's you know then you're just engaging with yourself and I think that's really dull.
0: I was thinking of Degas again recently and something that we had a conversation about before and it was, it was actually about Alice Neal, and about her the blue lines that she uses to describe the figure and I look I was looking at Ellen Rouard, the, the extraordinary portrait in the National Gallery in London by Duga, and he I love
1: that painting.
0: Yeah and and around the hands there are these blue lines. And I just suddenly thought, you know, is that another connection which I hadn't made? You know, had Alice Neal seen that? Or was it just a sort of... um, totally just a coincidence that they both used blue as this means to draw around, around the body. But, but again, it's, you know, he's such a painter that you, one can learn from and, 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 and and also bringing things into other painters that that, again, you learn from. So there's this constant learning from artist to artist to artist. Right. Yeah. It's
1: that sort of swinging through, you know, like when you used to swing from a bar to a bar at school on the sort of climbing frame or something you're literally holding their hand to get somewhere, you know, I mean, I think in somebody like Basquiat, you see that, you know, like in a kind of giant pot of, you know, sparkling connections he's making very fast between and writing their names and kind of, I love that. And then in Guston, you've got that famous painting where he's got, you know, Piero Masaccio and that, you know, all his legs kind of, you know, great people to look at. And that's the Chirico, of course, but I think it's funny, isn't it? So when you get to School and they put you in a little white booth on your own, as it were, with nothing, you know, and everybody immediately tries to put up something that they can tie themselves to. I think we're all doing that.
0: And let's talk about Paula Modus and Becker then, because from where I'm coming from, it seems like there's lots of sense, um, connections with your sensibility, too, in, in the way that she, in, the, in her connection to poetry, for instance, she knew Rilke and... But also in the that the fact that um, she was interested in working from other art and it was often quite unexpected art. She spent this time in the Louvre apparently studying ancient sculptures, which I, I hadn't realised until I, until I came to research this interview. So, would you say that there's a do you, you, you see a sort of kindred spirit in Paula and becker in some ways?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if you read her diary, like her diaries are brilliant. I mean, just that journey to Paris is so it's so brave. I, I, I don't think I was nearly as brave as Paula because, you know, she leaves Forbes Vader and just gets on a train, leaves her husband, arrives in Paris, has this funny little cold room, eats chocolate and pears and just, I don't know, I think about what the world would have been like then and really sort of frightening and especially for a young woman and just the sheer courage. And I think you see that incredible courage in the work to paint you know, those monumental reclining nudes with babies and stuff, you know, she was inventing it all for herself, while look, with one eye on the past, always, you know, always referencing, you know, the greats and, and the sculpture and anticipating maybe even prefiguring what Picasso's going to do, looking at, you know, art from Africa, so that she's, she is extraordinary, Paula and I think there's a lot we don't even understand. There's references. Like, I think she was looking at Fayan Egyptian art, you know, the sort of tomb portraits and stuff. And those, especially in her late self-portraits, those big-eyed ones, they're incredibly close to that. And I sort of think with artists, there's a brilliant Guston quote I've got up where he says, "I, I never stopped being a student. I was always looking at other artists, always getting my books out and always going to museums. And I think that should be true. I, I sound a bit boring, but <laughs> I think that should be true for all artists. You should always be looking at the
0: history of art. Do living artists sort of zone in and, and out of your consciousness as well? So you know, which living artists do you most admire?
1: There's so many people who are you know, I mean, I remember seeing Ellen Gallagher's show at um I think it's Anthony doffe maybe it must be twenty years ago. Did you see that?
0: It was I didn't. It was
1: phenomenal it was and she painted on broomstick I mean it was the most incredible show so Ellen Gallagher, Marlene Dumas, Nan Golden, uh, Talamadani, Mama Anderson, Faith Ringgold, uh, Tracy M and Alan Altfest, Judy Chicago, (laughs) Peter Doig, Paula Ray I don't know I love it's funny also you know I look on Jerry Saltz has that Instagram and he's always posting young painters I've never seen and some of them are incredible you know and I that's really exciting to me. It feels like painting is even more exciting than it's ever been. Well, maybe not ever been, but as as alive and meaningful.
0: Absolutely. Do you learn from contemporary painters in the same way as you might from historic painters? Does, in a way, do you look at contemporary art in the same way that you might look at historic art?
1: It's an interesting question. I mean. It's difficult, like somebody like Maria Lasnik who died not very long ago, I, do, I certainly look at her and there was a show of her in Bacon at um, Liverpool Tate that had a huge impact on me, on the kind of... on her willingness to be ugly and show ugliness and paint herself in the most raw, open, in-hospital, old, naked, kind of angry, and that so unapologetic. So, yeah, she had a huge influence and... You know, somebody like Kerry James Marshall, I saw big... I mean, he's alive, obviously, but he had a massive painting, I think it's called The Birthday Party, that was at um, MoMA in New York. It feels more of a conversation, like, I don't know, I went to a Peter Doig show in the autumn, and I was sort of, in my head, I was talking to him about the paintings. You know what I mean? Like, there was a woman on a beach, and there was a, a moon trail of light across the sea that was exactly out of Monk, you know, the sort of eye with the dot over the top kind of... And I was thinking, so, yeah, are you thinking, you know, of course he's thinking about Monk. it's obvious, but I love that. I love that chatter, you know, and and maybe when they're live, it feels ongoing in a way. I think a lot about that lately, about time and kind of it being not linear and that that incredible Picasso show that was up at the RA till, it may even still be up, which was one of the most incredible, it was Picasso and paper and it's just his cutouts and stuff and collage and it kind of blew my mind the kind of so yeah maybe I was chatting to him too in a way while I went around and I was going yeah yeah I could do that I, I want that you know.
0: You've drawn a lot on ph- on photographers work as well right?
1: Yeah I'm mad about photography I mean I, I often thought I'd like to have been a photographer like you know David Warnarovich's group of Rambo in New York I mean that for me that blew my mind I love that blend of kind of past and present and sort of abject life and Rambo's abject life and his abject life and stuff like that you never forget or Francesca Woodman or Arbus or Winogrand or Frank. I mean, I I love photography so much and I'm not sure I have a hierarchy, you know, and I love sculpture. I I love Rodin. I love Degas sculpture. I I mean, I love film. I'm not sure I think they're different, you know. They're just another way of that that person's best way to show what they're wanting to show or see.
0: I know from having visited your studio that you have piles of books everywhere and images everywhere. Can you tell me, in terms of the, the stuff that's around you in the studio, is that does it evolve? Do you sort of foreground certain stuff at certain points, put stuff away at other points? Is, is it an evolving uh, thing or is it much more um, haphazard than that?
1: No, it's completely evolving with maybe two sort of constants that live on the windowsill, so, but it is, I would hate it if it was stuck. Um, and I also have this fantasy, like I'll see other people's studios on the internet or in photos and books, and I think tomorrow I'm going to make a white cube to work in and I'll, I'll set out and I'll clean the studio, I'll turn everything to the wall, and lit, but I never get a white cube. And I also, you know, I've never had a way of hanging pictures on the wall. I always paint with them lent, and I always think if I were really a real artist, I would have gotten away to have them, hu- you know what I mean? Like in other people's studios, they literally have like a system <laughs> or even just some nails. And I've never even achieved that. I, and I think now I think maybe it just, I didn't want that and it's okay. But that fantasy of the perfect, you know, even like Guston's studio, it's always very empty and clean. And I think that's a failing and I will keep chasing that idea because actually I work better when it's clear and empty and I'm not naturally um good at that obviously it kind of you know cleaning <laughs> but anyway
0: as a visitor it was really fascinating to me because it felt like an artist studio should feel in the sense that it felt like it was a space of activity and it felt you know, it felt that the, the 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 paint being a substance was palpable. It was there was there was paint everywhere. There were pastels everywhere. It, it strikes me that you could grasp lots of materials, whether it was textual materials or different art materials, at will. And it, in that sense, it felt a very uh, genuinely, powerfully creative space.
1: I mean, I quite like because it's a reasonably big space. I quite like that it moves. So where I paint isn't fixed. I can. So sometimes I'll have a model by the door and I'll be there. And then the next day I'll move. Like, so I'm pretty mobile in it. And for a while I had a whole pastel s- sort of station. And lately I've been interested in sculpture. So I've had a table with, you know, armatures and I've got I've got this material called plastiline that Degas used that I never even knew about. It's like kind of never drying kind of um, plasticine. That's really fantastic. It's because I was using wax and that's weird because that you have to melt and it's quite slow but plastiline I really like and I'm really not very good at sculpture at all but I'm kind of enjoying that I do love a new material a lot and my studio allows that, you know, sometimes there's a collage area that's not there right now, you know, so I quite like it's like a fancy maybe when you were a kid that you could have all these different things in your room, you know, going, you know, Lego area, <laughs> that kind of, you know, paper doll area. I don't know.
0: This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Cork Street Galleries. Cork Street lies at the centre of the highest concentration of galleries in London and remains the spiritual and cultural home of the global art world, where the careers of some of the greatest artists of our time were launched. Cork Street Galleries is an initiative by the Pollen Estate. To find out more about the original home of the art world, go to corkstreetgalleries.com. I'm going to ask you now about museums and galleries. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently?
1: Well I'm very keen on the British Museum. I like that a lot because there's that bit at the top where there's always a new drawing show so you'll get you know um, Catholic Colwit or you'll get contemporary drawings or Japanese print. I, I love that. I love the British Museum. I love that things happen to you there you know like sort of sculptures you've never seen or a kind of um, Abyssinian kind of plaque or so I go there a lot and look at stuff and I like the happenstance but if I'm honest probably the National Gallery is the place I go more than any other and it's funny though recently because you know they change quite a lot or well for a long time it felt like they never changed and I was really happy and you know you could always know where your a particular Degas was or you know, that little one of Pauline Metternich, you know, she's sitting with the yellow wallpaper and that was always in the same place. And then they changed it and I was quite upset. But then I thought, actually, that's good because, you know, you have that thing where you visit all your favourites and, you know, the ones you love. And I thought maybe that's kind of a laziness, you know, maybe th- to always go to cello or the baptism of Christ or something. Maybe it's, maybe you're not seeing the other people and that's, I didn't like it when they moved it but yeah
0: are you able to walk past the national without popping in I mean I always find myself I find it pretty impossible not to go in even just to see one picture
1: no absolutely and if you know even if you're meeting your dad for lunch and I mean me and my brother I was making him go in and he's quite slow walking or you know pre-covid obviously but so he'd be like really and then we sort of I I never forget because I had to get from North London to Campbellwell and my bus changed um, by Trafalgar Square and it, you could go in you could just you know I hadn't really realised that till sort of I was seventeen and it was it was so brilliant you know that you could just hop in, have a quick look or go and look at a Titian or um such a luxury such a I do I think I love it probably the best of the big museums.
0: Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world?
1: I mean, I sound quite boring, but I think going to the Met in New York, there's something about the giganticness of it and kind of, there's a tiny sort of medieval crib in a little glass box that, I don't know, you can get lost quite literally and physically in the museum. There was, about two years ago, there was a show of quilts, of sort of 20th century quilts, um, that were like, Agnes Martin painting. They, I mean, they were all different. They were phenomenal. Um, and some, they were made with old jeans and stuff. So that isn't like one-off, but just for me, the Met is always the most sort of extraordinary, immersive kind of experience. And, you know, that thing of when you come out and you stand on those steps and the street is smashing past you and you kind of have that disorientation and all the guys selling gyros outside. I don't know, there's something inside the museum is all a kind of calmness and contemplation and then you're sprung back and I love that contrast of place and
0: looking. One of the things that struck me when I visited was I thought British museums were big you know and I thought you know, I thought that that these these great encyclopedic museums that we had were somehow kind of the, the thing and then when you go there you suddenly realize the scope of that institution is it's so epic isn't it almost almost unbearably epic in some ways. it's right
1: fr- i've been i've had a slight panic attack in there because i got lost in the nights but you know you can't find the door there's like um you're in medieval world and or you find the downstairs sort of cafeteria and yeah it 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 is panic inducingly gigantic and kind of you know some suddenly you're looking at Fabergé eggs you're like wow they're incredible and then you're like I don't know if I even like Fabergé eggs but you know what I mean there's a sort of it overwhelms you as an experience
0: let's turn to literature now and I know it's a it's a massive factor in your work so which books and writers do you return to
1: well, that's again that thing of the thing you are most interested in is the thing you are looking at at that moment. So, and then then I was trying to be fair to everybody and try and you know because they're all clamoring, aren't they? To pick me, pick me, and then you are like, well, yeah, I want to pick you all guys, but um, I was thinking about the people I go back to a lot, and you know, there is poets, so there is Plath and Lowell and Sexton, and, and then. I love biography very much. And then there's classic biographies I go back to, which are often of poets. I mean, there's an incredible one of Anne Sexton that is just the best and saddest in some ways. A bit like the Diane Arbus biography, which is fantastic, Patricia Bosworth. And then there's the Brontes, who, you know, for me, Jane Eyre is probably the best book ever. Books are funny, aren't they, though? Because it's always the one in your hand that's somehow the most... You know the
0: best, isn't it? You know. I mean, you mentioned Sexton, Lowell, and Plath there, and and there was there was a pretty important. In fact, there were, if I'm right, there are two bodies of work: very early collages and later paintings in which you refer to them. And it's interesting you talk about biography because it, 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 am I right in thinking that it was their poetry, but also their biographies that were sort of jumbled in your their 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 art and their lives were sort of jumbled in your mind in a sense
1: yeah I always feel a bit guilty about that as well or sort of you know that that badness about that the kind of obsession with their lives which is such a shared um human or you know everybody who reads has that or I also think that people are better than me who don't have that obsession with their lives and the way they're all overlapped so you know Caroline Blackwood connects Lowell with Freud and then um, you know, so then I'll read the letters of Lowell to Elizabeth Bishop and then the letters of Lowell to Blackwood and Elizabeth Hardwick. You know, I want to be chatting to them. I want to be with them. I want them to exist like they're real for me. Um, I think that's why the obsession with memoir and biography. Um, and I think Olivia Lang is incredible because she actually somehow conjures that in her books in, like, The Lonely City. She sort of brings them all back to life in a way. It's kind of what I'm trying to do in painting when I paint them, but that always feels it's just a a little kind of shadow of them, I guess, like a projection on the screen, you know.
0: Tell me about the process of making portraits and particularly about the brutality of that process. I mean, you sort of approvingly quoted that great Bacon quote about not wanting the person that he was depicting to see the violence that he was doing to them. And I think that's a really fascinating work because you oft- you obviously make quite a lot of portraits of people f- in front of them, and, and and that's a I can imagine that transaction is incredibly fraught, isn't it?
1: Well, I had a terrible experience recently. I wanted to paint my daughter, who's just turned sixteen, who is so beautiful, and I thought, and she wore a white dress for me t- to paint her, and and in the midst of painting, I was thinking, this is so empowered. She looks so strong. She's like a kind of Venus of the kind of Anyway, then I stepped back and about a week later I looked at it and it was a, it was a horrible painting. It wasn't, wasn't, it wasn't a good painting either, but it also wasn't what I... Th- I realised I have a kind of weird blindness. I think I'm sort of being weirdly flattering and often I'm not. I'm just painting... I'm painting what I see or what I think or what I feel, but it doesn't always work out how I think, I guess.
0: But it seems to me that that's crucially bound up with this whole idea of objectivity versus subjectivity. And so... Um, it's a language of feeling as well as a language of of sight, right? So, you're, and that seems really emphasised, especially in your recent work. Yeah,
1: I mean, I guess also because I get used to turning that on myself. So I'm always painting myself, and almost the more extreme way I can look at and depict myself, that's exciting to me. You know, if I can make my, give myself fourteen tummy folds, and a, I mean, I did this these ones of me in the bath that. And I was loving it because I made my body shorter and shorter, and everything kind of collapsed like a telescope until I looked like a monster in a way. And I kind of loved it. And I was thinking, so, but then I move on to a portrait, and it's like, how can I not do that, you know?
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. I wondered also you mentioned Olivia Lang earlier on, and obviously you you're in the book Funny Weather, this whole exchange between you. You're you're painting her, she's writing about the experience of being painted and um, in your studio with you. I wonder how that influenced your own perception of your process and your, your your painterly activity. Has 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 that been a fruitful collaboration in terms of how you think about your work?
1: Yeah, it's been it's been fantastic. I mean, not least because she's very honest and so I can sort of say something to her about, you know, I don't know, recently I was talking to her about something like whether I should show something and she was like, yeah, do that. I don't know, we can be very truthful about the work because she's working, I, it feels quite close the way we're thinking about work and that, I think artists and writers and um, photographers and filmmakers and thinkers, they all need to, that's almost the most exciting thing is that when you you can... Also, you can talk to her about in the Blyton books or, you know, your obsession with Salinger or... You know what I mean? it It's that... There is that incredible thrill when you hang out with somebody who loves books so much that you can talk to them about any book, you know, literally anything from, you know, Jilly Cooper's Riders to, Ina Blyton. And that's... There's no hierarchy, you know, or Beatrix Potter or, you know, whatever it is. I like that. I do really like and I I think it's also because maybe one was a bit outcast at school for for that kind of quality. So there's a kind of such a joy in finding other people who are as keen on on books. Yeah.
0: Um, What about sound? What music or other audio do you listen to while painting?
1: Um, I usually have some noise. So often I'll put the radio on and it'll be Radio 4 and it'll be mumbling away, but it's sub-audible often because I quite like the company. But then I've got a very old CD player and (laughs) my daughter always groans because it's either Joni Mitchell or Nick Cave, um, almost exclusively in like two CDs. You know, so I'll, I'll be sort of droning away, you know, people, they ain't no good or something. <laughs> and she'll be like, I can't listen to that ever again, um, though she loves Nick Cave. But um, I have no ear for music. And even though I've been listening to Joni Mitchell for 30-odd years, I, I still don't know the words to the song, you know, which is <laughs> quite an achievement.
0: Um, but but do you... I'm I'm always interested in how much music or sound is an aid to concentration or sort of paradoxically a useful means of distraction from overthinking
1: i like i I think it helps the kind of turning on the thoughts bit for me so it's a kind of if i'm kind of quite stuck i'll often turn on the cd player but then i'll play i can literally play the same cd maybe 20 times it doesn't I think a lot of people who really love music could not listen to a badly scratched CD of the same CD 20 to 30 times a day and not find it annoying. I think I'm I don't think I have any ear for music, but I like it. I mean, I have no I would say I was not a a connoisseur of music. Um,
0: Let's talk about paint again. Do you have a go to paint color that you use when you reach an impasse in your work that you just naturally reach for?
1: Um, I wouldn't say I had a go-to paint colour. I think I have a thing, which is to go to the art shop and pick a new colour. That's a good way. Like, at the local art shop, they had, a couple of years ago, they suddenly had lapis lazuli, and that was, just the name is exciting. You know, it's like, you know, the Madonna's kind of cloak or something. I, I, it's also really expensive, even for a little tube. And I, but then I took it almost masochistic pleasure in squeezing the whole tube onto it, you know the palette and using it all up and wasting it but um but for me yeah a new colour is i mean i have a i have a palette that i always arrange from like most people from light to dark colours and i'm very keen on cadmiums so i like the brightness um so i have my you know my regulars and then a few guest stars i guess
0: <laughs> and do they do, do those guest stars then surprise you in terms of like i I suppose do they change the language you use to paint it to a certain degree you were talking about you know squeezing a whole tube there and obviously with when with the variation in opacity and and transparency inevitably you apply them differently so in a way do you feel like those new colors test you in terms of the in terms of your language as well as in terms of the visual you know the just the visual impact of the color
1: I think for me it's more unconscious. I think I'm like sometimes I'll run out of a color say Veronese green which is that particular, you know, emeraldy creamy green and so I'll run out of that and I won't have it for ages and then I'll buy a new tube and it'll it'll kind of, you know, come back in and and then you can mix that with other colors and get weird combinations and kind of that be really exciting for it but it's it's pretty unconscious it's not I mean one time I was reading, there was a sort of photo book of Freud's studio, and I went and bought all his colours because I, cause I thought I like that every shift you make changes everything. So I thought, oh, I'll try his colours, and they're really odd colours. There loads of umbers and ochres, and huge number of browns, and you know, light browns and yellows and stuff. So I bought them all, though you couldn't actually, and greens and oxides and stuff, but. That was really really hard. I've really struggled to paint with his palette even though it was quite exciting but i really it was good it was a good way to realize how you can lapse into habits and try and breaking habits and trying to mix not fall into a habit of how you mix you know a blue or a green or you know whatever color you know if i'm doing brown hair do I just reach for umber and a bit red or something, you know how you I think it's so important to, con- you know, Dega's always saying that, you know, find it, find a different solution to the question or something. Um, I mean, that's why pastel was so sort of exciting, because it was so, it was just other. And also, I like the violence with which you can draw when you use oil sticks or pastels. You know, it's incredibly physical, and that, for me, is quite important.
0: Now, tell me about, like, daily rituals is there a sort of essential ritual in your daily working life that you insist on sticking to
1: (laughs) not that I insist on sticking to but I thought about that when I came in today I thought yeah I don't have any of those and then I came in and I changed my shoes and my clothes to my painting clothes and I made a cup of tea and I thought and sometimes when I'm in the midst of that I've always thought you know that you probably don't know but there was a film of it here called Mr Rogers Neighbourhood which is a kids' show in America, and he would arrive every morning, change his shoes and his cardigan, which was bizarre because he was wearing perfectly okay shoes and cardigan. Then he went on to present a kids' show. So why he did that, I never... As a child, I was baffled. But anyhow, how, I am just like Mr. Rogers in that... I, but I do it because I don't want to dirty up my clothes. But um, So I've got very old pair of painty um, sort of clogs that I put on and then a pair of horrible... Uh, stripy trousers and a shirt and that is important because it's important you know not to worry about your clothes or anything and um so yeah but that's not really a ritual just a practical kind of thing
0: sort of readying your armor for the battle with the canvas
1: yeah it's a bad day if I haven't changed into the clothes you know if I've I've just slumped on the sofa for eight hours and you know listened to the radio and done that that's a bad day
0: can that happen though then you you do have days where it's it's more thinking than than painting.
1: Yeah, I can have days where it's not even thinking. <laughs> Those are really <laughs> bad, or I'm just sleeping. Or um, I think they probably have a value, but they can be quite. You know, if you have four or five days in a row where you just slump, I mean, I think all artists have this. Where you sit there thinking, in a minute I'm going to get up, in a minute I'm going to move to the bit where I paint, in a minute I'm going to pick up a pencil. You know, but and then the day's gone. <laughs> it's time to go home, and I. I hope there's value in that because, you know, that is a lot of times.
0: Um, One thing that I wanted to ask you about in connection with rituals is that you imposed a ritual on yourself when you made the self-portraits every single day for a year. I wonder once you'd done... Well, first of all, tell me about that experience, but also once it had gone, was it a relief or did you somehow miss it?
1: Well, first of all, I really missed it because it was fantastic. It's so good to have something to do, like to have that to fall back on even if you do nothing else in a day and so when I started painting at home during lockdown I started doing some self not one a day just they were a finite group and they had a sort of finite connection to each other that and it was begun on um, the first day of the new year and they had a kind of they felt kind of coherent and exciting to me and each at the time maybe not so much but as they went as they accumulated it was their accumulation it's funny isn't it though because in art there's always that bit where you're like god this is the most incredible exciting thing I've ever done it's all going to be great it's going to be like this forever and then suddenly one day you go and it's all gone and it's dead and you have and you know you have to move on it's like but you don't know how or where to go and I, You know, it's like you're always running down a road and then you hit a wall and then you find another road. I think everybody has that. But so those pictures, they were a real sort of lifeline at the time that I really needed. And I allowed myself to paint for quite a... Sh- they didn't take long, you know, maybe an hour to paint one. And that was enough to have done in the day. That literally was enough. And I allowed myself that and that felt good that I had you know, achieved that
0: what was the experience like when they were hung in a gallery? Because I can imagine that must have been quite unsettling in some way, because it had been this intimate process, you in your studio, you at home, you, you know, and then suddenly it's in a white wall gallery in the West End, and lots of other people are coming to see it. And suddenly that intimacy that you had with your own face suddenly was everybody else's space. I wonder how that felt.
1: I think often I'm, maybe I'm in the uh, exhibitions, I'm completely disassociating, you know, I'm kind of, I mean, people kept coming up to me going, wow, you're not as ugly as you made yourself, you know, which always feels completely irrelevant and pointless. You know, I, they say it like it's a compliment (laughs) that you're going to be happy about. You're like, I mean, I always remember in a different show where I had a massive naked self portrait, seeing some guy standing below it, sort of holding my breasts up with his hands imaginatively. And I was like, I was struggling enough, I'd broken the tooth because I've been gritting my teeth so much with anxiety about being at the show. You know what I mean? So, the whole experience of the show is so, so fraught that I'm, and you're so naked in every sense that I'm not sure it made any difference. I don't think it made it better or worse. Just the same horror, <laughs> I think. <laughs>
0: Um, the next question is one I realise is quite an agonising one especially given how many artists you said that you admire if you could live with one work of art what would it be?
1: I thought about this for a long time and it's funny my daughter came in as I was doing it and she went oh well obviously it'd be a day guard mum which day which day and I was like oh well you know and then I thought about it a bit longer and I thought actually the one I would pick would be Piero della Francesca's Baptism of Christ because cause you could you know, the flowers in the background, or his pants, or his hands over his head, or, you know what I mean? It was a painting you could immerse yourself in forever, I I feel. I mean, I thought that today, and I'm, tomorrow it'll be, oh my god, I could have had bar at the Follier-Bergère, or you know, Dejeuner sur l'Herbe, or his portraits of birth, Morrison, morning, or, you know, I could go <laughs> on for quite a long time. Um, I, but, I think, yeah, I think today <laughs> I would go for the Piero.
0: I mean, Michael Armitage chose Titian's Pieta, which I think is a wonderful painting, but I, I, I'm not sure I'd like to live with
1: it. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Because sometimes I have I have got, like I bought a photograph by Francesca Woodman and I find, I find owning art quite hard and, and I want to own it, I covet it, and then I own it and I feel a bit kind of guilty. You know what I mean? Like... Of course, if you had that, Pierre, you'd feel terrible. You were stopping other people. You know what I mean? It's such a... It feels way better to go to the National and see it, doesn't it, really? You don't want to own it. You'd feel just disgusting. I mean, it's like if you had a Van Gogh in your living room. You know, you would feel evil. I mean, so, yeah, anyway.
0: So private collectors, donate your works to museums. No, that sounds terrible.
1: I shouldn't say that. <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's a hierarchy, though. I mean, I think Pierre Van Gogh, yeah, okay. Not private, but I think it's okay for people to have pictures,
0: <laughs> so the last question that we ask everyone again, another hard one what's art for?
1: for me, it is literally to make art is literally to engage with those thoughts for me, that is literally the whole point is and then i and then I thought, yeah, but why why do I want to look at art and i and and I thought, I mean, loving art is a bit like being part of a kind of weird religious cult, almost. You know what I mean? Where you you sort of visit it and pay pilgrimages to it, and I get excited by it, you know, and touch the foot, and you know, and I literally do do that and go to Rodan's house and Paula's house and you know whoever's house. And um, but I think the reason we we love it so much is that to see to see. The world through somebody else's eyes I know that sounds a bit trite but isn't that literally why to literally Van Gogh's kind of cafe you're you know what I mean we're there aren't we we're literally there and we're that day and you know time is changed by the experience or Rembrandt's self portrait or whoever's art it is we're inside them and I guess that's why to go back to the poets, that's what I'm trying to do, climb inside them and see through because we're so trapped in our own selves and that to climb outside and you know Turner's kind of landscape, or whoever it is, or whistle jacket or and it's all the other stuff, the mastery and the material and the and the soutines, paint, but yeah, just to crawl outside ourselves for a minute, I think.
0: Chantal, thank you so much for this.
1: Thank you so much for asking me. It was great to talk about painting.
0: Chantal Joffey's exhibition, For Esme, With Love and Squalor, is at the Arnolfini Gallery in Bristol, UK, from the 3rd of September until the 22nd of November. And a show of Chantal's new works will be at Victoria Miro in Wharf Road, London, from the 10th of November until the 18th of December. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts if you've enjoyed it. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. And just a reminder that you can listen to the full back catalogue of our other podcasts at the art newspaper, The Week in Art, wherever you get your podcasts. More than 100 episodes looking at the art world in depth from museums and heritage to the art market. Many of them feature interviews with artists from Peter Doig to Howardena Pindell. Do subscribe to The Week in Art to be notified about new episodes. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the Art Newspaper podcast are Julia Mahouska and Amy Dawson. Thanks to Henrietta Bentall and Daniela Hathaway. Big thanks to Chantal Joffe. Do join us for the next episode A Brush With, Rashid Johnson. See you then. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Cork Street Galleries. To find out more about the original home of the art world, go to corkstreetgalleries.com.